It was about a year ago, 6.30 on Friday morning, that I traveled up to Prestonwood Baptist Church for the men's ministry meeting. I got there a little bit late. They'd already started. We met in a big gymnasium, and they called me forward. And I saw at the table Philip DeCourcy, who I know is a good friend to you guys and to the whole congregation has preached here a number of times. And, and there was somebody next to him I did not know. Philip was preaching that morning for the men's ministry meeting. And after the service, I got to meet your pastor, Dr. Mark Hitchcock. It was the first time I had met him, but not the first time I'd heard of him. I knew all about your pastor because of his ministry, not just here, but through his written ministry, the books he's written and the work he's done at Dallas Theological Seminary. And, and I don't know, I don't know whether you folks realize it or not. Sometimes, I suppose, you don't know how your own pastor is viewed around the country. But your pastor is held in the highest esteem, not just around the country, but around the world. He's a prolific author. You already know that. In my judgment, he's the number one writer on Bible prophecy in the world today. I'm so glad for his friendship for his ministry, and for the fact that you allow him to go down week by week and teach at Dallas Seminary and equip and train the next generation. So, after I met Mark, he said, you got to come to Faith Bible. I said, well, sure, we'll do it sometime, and you never know. And about six weeks ago, when he got in touch with me, he said, could you come? And it was this Sunday, he was going to be gone, really the only Sunday I had in the whole summer. And so, I thought it was providential that I met him at Prestonwood Baptist Church in Providential I could be here, and since this is the last service, I want to say, on behalf of my wife Marlene and me, how much we have enjoyed being here. There's a great spirit. You can, let me say this, you can smell the joy here at Faith Bible Church, and hold on to that phrase, just hold on to that, you'll hear that again, but you can smell the joy, you can feel it, and great things are happening here, and glad to be a part of it today ask you to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to John chapter 12 to a story very well known story you've read and thought about and heard others talk about John 12 for the message entitled how much is too much not how much that would be a different question how much is too much the story begins this way Verse 1, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, the one Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. This might have been the strangest dinner party in history. For one thing, Lazarus was there. Not long before, he had been dead. Then Jesus raised him back to life, an event that no doubt stirred up the whole village of Bethany. And it appears that this dinner party was given in Jesus' honor to thank him for raising Lazarus from the dead. I say that because John notes twice that Lazarus was there and was reclining at the table with Jesus. And that, that does raise a very interesting question. What exactly do you say to a man who's been raised from the dead? What's the appropriate dinner party topic? 
What did it feel like when you were dead? Did you see anything? Were you sorry to come back? I mean, that's not a normal topic for a dinner party. But that's only one part of the story. At some point that evening, Mary did something so startling that it shocked Jesus' top men. Because all of them were there. All the disciples were there. When they saw what Mary did, they could not believe their eyes. Every part of what she did bothered them. And that is why this story appears not once, not twice, but three times in Matthew, in Mark, and in John. It made a big impression on the apostles. But as we will see, Mary knew Jesus in a way his disciples didn't. She saw clearly what was about to happen when Jesus entered Jerusalem. If she didn't know all the details, she knew trouble was coming, big trouble. She knew Jesus was going to die. So she prepared a gift that shocked the disciples. But Jesus loved it. Let's set the scene. It's Saturday night in Bethany, a small village on the outskirts of Jerusalem. In just a few hours, Jesus will enter Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Soon he will cleanse the temple, curse the fig tree, teach in the temple courts, and confront the rising tide of hatred from the religious leaders. Tonight is the last happy evening he will know. Tomorrow he begins his final journey to the cross. Tonight they celebrate. Tomorrow he will enter Jerusalem. In six days he will hang on a cross. As we ponder this dinner party, our eyes focus on two people, Mary and Judas. Mary never says a word. Judas says too much. One reveals her heart by what she does. The other by what he says. Now, let's focus on two questions that help us unpack this story. Question one, what did Mary do? We get the answer to that in verse 3. Then Mary took a pound of fragrant oil, pure and expensive nard, and anointed Jesus' feet, which means at least, at least she poured it on his feet, but the word to anoint probably means she poured it on and rubbed it in. Then she wiped his feet with her hair. So the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Some things can't be explained rationally. This is one of those things. Nard was an oil extracted from the root of the nard plant grown in India. It was a very aromatic perfume. had a number of uses, including anointing dead bodies. It was, as John says, very expensive. A pound of nard equaled 300 denarii, as Judas reckoned it. Meaning, now you know that one denarius was to pay for a working man in Jesus' day. And he said 300 denarii. So that would be, roughly speaking, the equivalent of nine months' salary for a working man in that day. Now, it is hard for us to fathom that from this distance or to think about it properly. In our day, it would be like spending, we'll just pick a number out of the air. It would be like spending $45,000 on a bottle of perfume. Who does that? You can buy a nice car for $45,000. Not only does she have a jar of expensive oil, she pours it on Jesus' 
feet. Now John says, the fragrance of the oil filled the house. I'm sure it smelled wonderful. It ought to smell good for that kind of money. Is that too much? Is that too much? Is that extravagant? And I, I picked that word because whenever preachers come to this text, we all use the same word. We talk about Mary's extravagant gift and Mary's extravagant love. So is, is that extravagant? Well, it all depends on your perspective. Now, you all know Leonardo DiCaprio, the world-famous movie star, Oscar winner. Uh, he's appeared in many blockbuster movies. Not long ago, for a vacation of several weeks' duration, he rented a yacht for the cost of $400,000 a week. Is that too much? Is that extravagant? It all depends. They say Leonardo DiCaprio is worth $220 million. He can afford it. Now, the most expensive hotel room in the world is in the Hotel President Wilson in Geneva, Switzerland. There, you can rent out the Royal Penthouse Suite. That's 12-bedroom suite for a cool $82,000 a night. Now, you can go for a week and a half vacation and spend $820,000. Is that extravagant? Well, it all depends. If your name is Bill Gates, you're worth $86 billion. To Bill Gates, that would be pocket change. Your perspective changes everything. Most expensive bottle of wine ever sold, $310,000. Most expensive car sold at auction, 1962 Ferrari, uh, 250 GTO. 2014 auctioned off for $34 million. Perfume, we're talking perfume. 2011 DKNY unveiled its golden shaped, golden apple shaped million dollar bottle of perfume. Now, let me tell you, the bottle itself is crafted in 14 carat yellow and white gold. It contains 183 yellow sapphires, 2700 white diamonds, a 1.6 carat turquoise tourmaline from Brazil, a 7 carat oval sapphire from Sri Lanka, 15 vivid pink diamonds from Australia, 4 rose cut diamonds, a 3 carat oval cut ruby, a 4 carat pear shaped rose cut diamond, and a 2.4 carat flawless vivid yellow canary diamond adorning the cap. All in all, the bottle contains 2,909 precious stones. But the best part is that the aforementioned stones have been hand-placed to replicate the New York City skyline. The process took nearly 1,500 hours to complete. For a million dollars, that bottle of perfume can be yours. Okay, that's extravagant. Before we go any further, let me make two points. Whenever we talk about this, remember, number one, extravagance is always in the eye of the beholder. And number two, whenever we talk about extravagance, we're never talking about ourselves. We're always only talking about someone else. So how much is too much? No one knows. Everyone agrees the Taj Mahal in India is one of the wonders of the world. If you've ever been there, you know I have been there. I've seen it with my own eyes. Uh, it, is, it is so stunningly 
beautiful that no picture could ever do justice to the, to the fabulous scene of the Taj Mahal. Built in 1632 by Shah Jahan in memory of his third wife who died in childbirth. Now, what would it cost to replace such, um, such, a, such a, um, a masterpiece as the Taj Mahal? One source estimated that the replacement cost would be between $10 billion and $1 trillion. Number one, that's a pretty vast spectrum. And number two, is that too much? How do you even answer a question like that? Whatever else we may think about what Mary did, it did not seem extravagant to her. She didn't complain. She never answers Judas. In fact, in this story, she never says a word. I ask the question, Mary, what would lead you to do something like this? Well, remember, remember, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. Her brother. If you think about it, this is the only time in history where two men who would be raised from the dead ate at the same table. Lazarus has been raised. Jesus will be raised. So it's a remarkable occasion. When Mary saw Jesus raise her brother, she realized he's more than a teacher, more than a prophet. She now knows he has power and authority that can only come from God. So I just ask this question. To those of you who have lost loved ones, what would you give to have your loved one back? In the Old Testament, four groups were anointed. Kings, prophets, priests, and the dead. Jesus fits the first three groups. In a few days, he's going to join the fourth. It seems at this point that Mary understands Jesus better than his own men do. Now, when Warren Wearsby wrote about this passage, he pointed out that Mary takes center stage in the New Testament three times, and all three times we find her in the same place, sitting at Jesus' feet. In Luke 10, she wants to hear the words of the Lord. In John 11, she wants to experience the works of the Lord. In John 12, she wants to declare the worth of the Lord. She did not come to eat the meal. She did not come to fellowship with the others. She did not come to ask a question. She did not come to listen. She came to give her best to Jesus. It was her desire to honor the Lord that moves her to violate the customs of the day. You see, in that day, a woman would normally not sit in a man's feet, much less let down her hair in public, and certainly not wipe his feet with her hair. It was, in a sense, a very personal act that others were permitted to see. So Judas, as you know, objects to what Mary is doing. He speaks up. And this is how Jesus responds in verse 7. Leave her alone. She's kept it, meaning the perfume. She's kept it for the day of my burial. Now that comment would not have made much sense at that point to the disciples. They would not understand it until after the crucifixion. Does that mean that she had special advanced knowledge about his upcoming death? Well, we don't know. Certainly, Jesus, if you read the Gospels, he told his men and, and the other followers, he told his followers what was going to happen. And as he got closer and closer to the end, he was more explicit about his coming death. And ultimately, even he told them about his resurrection. So certainly that is part of it. Perhaps 
Mary had the kind of intuition women sometimes have about these things. No doubt she sensed the gathering clouds of hatred and opposition. She would have realized Jesus didn't fit in the world of the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. He touched a leper. He let a prostitute touch him. Perhaps Mary surveyed the scene and concluded that Jesus, whom she loved, was not long for this world. True love, deep love, honest-to-goodness love can't be explained even when you see it. You don't understand it. Judas has a good point, but so what? Love has its reasons, and those reasons can't always be spelled out. So what then can we say about Mary? She's all in. She's fully committed. And maybe most importantly, she doesn't care what others think. Mary's gift was so extravagant and so radical that his top men couldn't understand it. Now, I've already told you that, that this story is told three places. When John tells the story, he focuses only on Judas and his objection. But when the story is told in Matthew and Mark, both those writers make clear that the other disciples who were there, the other apostles, that many of them, maybe even most of them, were scandalized by what Mary did. Judas may have been the spokesman, but he was only saying what the others, I don't know if it was James, Peter, John, Bartholomew, Matthew, but many, maybe most of the boys standing around looking at this, they were shocked. And one thing I'll be honest with you about, every time I read this story, I know the truth. I know the truth. I know the truth about myself. If I had been there that night, if I had been there, I would have been standing around here with the boys going, Mary, Mary, get up. Mary, get up. Mary, don't be pouring that perfume out. Mary, don't let your hair down. Mary, don't do that. People are going to talk about you. I know. That's what I would have said. Which leads me to one further thought. If my faith never leads me to do things that make no sense to others, including my Christian friends, perhaps I'm playing it too safe. If everything I say and everything I do seems perfectly comprehensible to the world, maybe I need to do some soul searching. The world says Mary was a fool to do what she did. Would the world ever say that about me? That's too close for comfort, which is one reason this story is in the Bible. So we pass on now to the second question. We know what Mary did. Why was Judas so upset? Look at verses 4 and 5. Then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, and underline this, who was about to betray him, said, Why wasn't this fragrant oil sold for 300 denarii, there's your $45,000, and given to the poor? Now, in thinking about this, keep two things in mind. Number one, Judas is not yet the Judas we know when he does this. Note, John says Judas was about to betray Jesus. Mary anoints Jesus on Saturday night. Judas will betray Jesus in four days. So, Judas is not yet the bad guy he's about to become when he makes this statement. Number two, as I've said, when Matthew and Mark tell the same story, they point out basically many Perhaps most of the other disciples made the same objection. Judas may have been the one to speak out, but he said what the others were thinking. You see, at this point in the story, nobody has any reason to suspect 
Judas's upcoming betrayal. After all, you do not put a questionable person in charge of a money bag. You give it to someone you trust. That means Judas was highly regarded by the other disciples. It also means those guys were not good judges of character. He fooled them completely. So that brings us then to his objection. Remember, 300 denarii, $45,000 roughly. Now, question, where did Mary get that much money in the first place to buy that expensive ornament? We don't know, and it's useless to speculate. What cannot be denied is that her gift was radical and in the eyes of the disciples, reckless. Why waste the perfume by pouring it on Jesus' feet? Why not give it to the poor? Well, Jesus tells us what he thinks. Verses 7 and 8. He lets us know he's very pleased with what Mary did. Leave her alone. He's talking to Judas. Leave her alone. For she has kept it, meaning the perfume, for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now I stop here to say, I do know that, that statement of our Lord has been taken out of context to, throughout the centuries and down to our present day in current theological controversy. The words of Jesus, the poor you always have with you, uh, they have been used to imply that our Lord was callous, that our Lord didn't care about the poor, as if he was just saying, forget about the poor, just come and worship me. That's not what Jesus is saying. Remember, our Lord was Jewish. Remember, all the original disciples were Jewish. They would have known the Torah, the law of God, what we call the Old Testament. Jesus, when he said, the poor you always have with you, watch this. He's alluding to, and you can check me out on this later, Deuteronomy 15, verse 11. Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, which says, There will never cease to be poor people in the land. That is why I am commanding you. You must willingly open your hand to your afflicted and poor brother in your land. It's as if Jesus is saying, don't use your phony compassion as an excuse to criticize Mary. The law commands you to show kindness to the poor. You're always to care for them. Nothing is stopping you from taking your own money and giving it to them right now. Seen in that way, the words of Jesus are both a challenge and a rebuke. Spend your own money on the poor and stop criticizing Mary for showing such amazing devotion. That's what he means when he says, leave her alone. Judas, if you're so fired up about the poor, take your own money and go take care of the poor. And don't criticize Mary for what she is doing. So while I was studying for this message, I came across this insight. May have gotten it from A.W. Pink, who has a lot of good things to say about this passage. Listen, whenever anyone becomes extravagant in their worship, the devil stirs up trouble. I'm going to repeat that. Whenever anyone becomes extravagant in their worship, the devil stirs up trouble. What happened in Matthew 2? Here come the, here come the magi from the east bearing gifts. They, they, they find Jesus in the home in Bethlehem. They bow down and worship him, and they give him uh, offerings of what? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Extremely expensive, extremely extravagant. What's the very next thing that happens in Matthew 2? King Herod says, let's go find all the baby boys of Bethlehem and put them to death. Whenever anybody 
starts to go overboard in their worship, you can bet the devil's going to stir up trouble. It's not surprising then that as Mary worship, worships, Judas speaks up and tries to ruin that beautiful moment. It was Satan trying to change the subject. If he can stop our worship, he'll get us arguing among ourselves. And soon enough, we'll stop worshiping altogether and spend all our time arguing. Here then is the fundamental difference between Judas and Mary. Judas loved money. Mary loved Jesus. You can't love money and Jesus at the same time. You have to choose. You'll hate one and you'll love the other. That's what Jesus said. Matthew 6, 24. Mary made her choice. Judas made his. I wonder what choice we have made. Jesus was clearly pleased with what Mary had done. And, and folks, folks, let's don't ever make the mistake of saying we have to choose between showing compassion and worshiping Jesus. Don't ever fall into that trap. We don't have to choose between world missions and worship. We don't have to choose between feeding the poor, caring for the needy, and the homeless shelters, and all the good work that's being done in Jesus' name around the world. We don't have to choose between that and worshiping the Lord. We ought to do them both. But in this case, Mary chose the better part, even though the men thought she was crazy to do what she did. But she was right, and they were wrong. And Judas was worse off than anyone knew that night. Mary showed her uninhibited devotion to Jesus, which shocked the men who saw it. In this case, radical love is better than phony compassion. Now, there are several obvious lessons here, including, I guess maybe the central one is that uh, we ought to go ahead and love Jesus and try not to criticize those who express their love differently than we do. Do you love Jesus? Really, my whole sermon is right, coming right down to this. Do you love Jesus? Good. Don't be afraid to let the world know. And don't worry about what anyone else thinks. When the love of Jesus captures your heart, you won't worry about what others think. On your sermon notes, I gave you three obvious implications from this story. Let me just give you these now. Number one, true love can't be explained. It can only be observed. It can't be explained. It can only be observed. Number two, if we become radical in our love for Jesus, our close friends, including our close Christian friends, will likely not understand us. If we become radical in our love for Jesus, some people who know you well, they're just not going to understand why you do what you do. Number three, if my love for Jesus never leads me to take a risk, a risk, how much do I truly love Him? Brothers and sisters, there are moments in life when we must act, even if no one else joins us. One final verse, and it does not come from John 12. Because when this story is told in Matthew and Mark, there's a, there's a final statement of Jesus that's told there that's not repeated in John, but it applies. Matthew 26, 13, 
Come to the end of that story. Same story, same event. Jesus said, truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Watch this. Even as Jesus spoke those words, the fragrance of the oil was filling the room. Soon it would waft upstairs. Soon the people on the roof would catch the aroma. Soon it would go out the windows and down the street. And soon everyone in the little village of Bethany would benefit from Mary's extravagant generosity. Listen. She did it for Jesus, but everyone benefited, including Judas, who disapproved. Heartfelt worship never stays private. Her gift honored Jesus, but it blessed everyone nearby. So it is with our worship. Let me try to summarize it all this way. If we do what we do merely out of obligation or out of guilt, we risk ending up like Judas. Only one motivation matters. Deep love for Christ. We must start there. The question is not, how much do I love the lost? But, how much do I love the Lord? The question is not, where will I go? But, how far will I go? The question is not, will I obey Jesus? But, what fills my heart? Years ago, I read this statement from Jess Moody. I think it's true. He said, quote, People choose a church with their noses. They can smell the joy. We could smell it here this morning. You know, you go to a church. We've never been here this morning, till this morning, but can smell the joy here at Faith Bible Church. You know, sometimes you visit a church, you've never walked in, but the love of the Lord is so evident, the joy is so manifest, you can smell. And you know what else? When a church is full of angry, fussing, fighting, feuding people, you can smell that in the atmosphere too. Joy is hard to define, but you know it when you smell it. When joy is in the air, it brings with it the aroma of heaven. Something like that happened at Bethany. The aroma of heaven was in the air. And everyone, everyone could smell it. Okay. Every sermon should have an application. Here's mine. I like to tell you so you won't miss it. Simplest possible application. Don't let anyone tell you to back off from your love for Jesus. Don't let anyone tell you to be reasonable in your joy. Don't let anyone talk you into playing it safe. How much is too much love for Jesus? There is no such thing. Let your affections for Jesus be lavish. And don't worry about what anyone else thinks. Mary loved 
so extravagantly that she scandalized the apostles. But that's why we're still talking about her 2,000 years later. Or maybe we could just say it all this way. We're the whole realm of nature mind that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Shake us up, Lord. Shake us up and wake us up so that we will not be ashamed to be counted fools for Christ's sake. Fill our lives with the aroma of heaven so that others will know how much we love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.